0: Okay, so I'm reading this off a smartphone, and in fact, it's funny, I went to uh, Metatron reading, and that was the first time that I'd ever seen poets reading their work off smartphones. It's probably not <laughs> unusual for you, but for me it sure was, so.
1: Which reading was Sorry. it?
0: Uh, it was a Blue Met reading.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. That was our, our most recent one
0: okay so ashley obscura is a canadian mexican writer publisher and editor she's the author of the poetry collections ambient technology and i am here metatron 2014 and four digital poetry projects lyite how to be a rainbow or a halo and *O oh, inverted universe the founder and managing editor of metatron press Obscura currently lives in Montreal, Quebec, where she holds a Bachelor of Arts in Creative Writing and Professional Writing. Ambient Technology was shortlisted for Fences Modern Poets Prize in 2017, and Obscura was anthologized as one of Canada's 30 under 30 poets. Her poetry has been anthologized in the United States and has been translated and published in Spain, Mexico, Argentina, Peru, and Romania. She was recently the scriptwriter writer for Museum of Symmetry, a surreal virtual reality experience produced by the National Film Board of Canada. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank
1: you. Hi.
0: <laughs> you were born in Saskatchewan.
1: I was born in Saskatchewan. I was born in Saskatoon. Landed the Living Skies. Did
0: you grow up there?
1: I did. Yeah, I lived there until I was 19 and then I came and visited Montreal I had a couple friends that had moved here and I just didn't want to leave. I came and had a great time and you know experience got a little taste of what you know it feels like to live in a city that is very multicultural and I was just like I need to be here so I applied to get into the creative writing program at Concordia which I did and then it just And then I came here. But yeah, my life did start in the prairies.
0: I was ripped out of England at age 12 by my parents and taken to Saskatoon. Oh, really? Yeah. And lived there until I was 22.
1: (laughs) Oh wow. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful place. It
0: is. And it's a great university. I went to university there. Clean living. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I understand that it's got a pretty vibrant cultural
1: yeah. life. Yeah, I would say it's it's cultural. I wouldn't say it's multicultural. No,
0: no, it's, well, from, from my experience, it was pretty white bread.
1: Yeah, and that was my experience, too. And I guess there's this, I think that when I look back at, like, growing up in Saskatoon, I think that there's something about the skies out there, like growing yeah. up being mm-hmm. young and like the big open space. I feel like I developed this, this ability to be a, like a ridiculous dreamer or something. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there was just all this open space and just so much space for you to imagine something else.
0: I can relate to that. One of the strongest memories I have of Saskatoon is during the winter. Mm-hmm. When I was walking to school, high school, and it was so cold that you could hear the traffic that was about, you know, at least a mile and a half away, as if it was right next to you. That's how cold it was. I'll never, (laughs) ever forget that. Yeah. But that's not the reason you left. The cold wasn't the reason you left. It was just Montreal's multicultural vibe.
1: Yeah, it was definitely Montreal as a city and also as a person, I just, I, I really wanted to be in a space where I could grow into who I, who I am, who I thought I could be, you know, and I didn't, I didn't feel like socially there was like much for me in Saskatoon, or even... What, is, what does that
0: mean? Couldn't find a decent boyfriend or <laughs> girlfriend?
1: No, I think it just means, um, there wasn't like a super vibrant literary scene there that I really felt like I identified with. And there wasn't, I was really interested in, in exploring being a writer and there just weren't many opportunities there for me to do Mm -hmm. that. Um, I think from the very get go, I've really always craved like a literary community more than anything. So, you know, and like we can get into that, but that's a lot about what Metatron is all about. Um, because when I came out to Montreal and studied, I found that there was no, no community at Concordia. You know, if anything, there was a sort of culture that I wasn't, didn't really feel included in, I guess.
0: At Concordia.
1: Yeah, at Concordia. Um, I'm sure you read about it a little bit in the news recently hard not to yeah so yeah lots of the people implied in that were actually my professors um I wasn't you know directly um affected by that well I was directly affected but not in like an explicit way but just culturally it just seemed very closed doors um there was no opportunities to do any readings there was no because
0: because you didn't get sexually involved with the yeah. Gatekeepers?
1: Yeah. It's like if you didn't stroke their egos, then you weren't really like included in in whatever connections they had. Hmm. Yeah. So I kind of, you know, graduated in that climate and I was still very determined to get my own work out there. And there were a bunch of people around me whose work I was super interested in too. And I was just like, well, if no one else is going to do it, I guess I will. I've read a few
0: interviews that you've given over the past couple of years. And one of them, I really liked what you said. And maybe it has some application to what you've just said. The people who don't believe in you are also important too because their doubt is good ammunition to prove them wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, I f- there's a certain thing to be said of when you don't feel like you belong in a space. Um, you know, there's two routes you can go. You can either, you know, give up and be like, I guess there's no space for me, or you can you know, be like, create your own space, is actually very much what I feel like I've done. I've just, I've created... Um, You've done more than
0: create space, obviously.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a lot. I mean, I've done books, done 50 readings, you know, there's been like the digital component as well. Um, so, the,
0: the website and the blog?
1: Yeah, like the blog, and you know, now it's the digital magazine. So, yeah, I guess, what would you say? What, what, is, what else have I done other than create space?
0: Well, you've, you've created books,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you've created a digital presence, uh, you've created a community.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I guess space is a place for people to come. Is that how you're defining space?
1: Yeah, I guess I'm really interested in, in like, the idea of space because um, it's just like there was no, when I started, there was no alternative culture for, specifically in Canada, for, like, this new form of literature that was coming out, you know, that was informed by the internet. This is, like, the first generation that is, you know, post-digital, growing Mm. up with the internet, like, writing and sharing their work on the internet. You know, so it's kind of like the first like digital poetry, it's like the first, I don't know, series yeah. of digital poets. You know, and interestingly enough, in my last year at Concordia, I happened upon this this Facebook group called Alt Lit Gossip, which has a bizarre name, but pretty much it was this community of hundreds of young writers who were starting like self-publishing their own ebooks and starting their own publishing presses and starting their own digital like magazines um, doing readings live streaming those readings and it was like these you know i was really inspired by this community because they didn't need permission from anyone to exist you know what i mean cuz on the internet space is l- unlimited, unlimited you know yeah, yeah.
0: So, you've really got the freedom to produce something that could theoretically be seen by a whole bunch of people.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had this amazing freedom with, I mean, I, I attribute everything I've been able to do, you know, besides from my own will and drive, but because of, you know, the internet and also like access to affordable digital programs that allow you to, you know, learn how to like lay books out and... You know, and then all the promotion that you can do online. Given my resources, I would have never been able to establish a press, say, 20 years ago. Yeah,
0: yeah. There are lower barriers to entry Mm -hmm. for you, for this generation, than ever before.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge is creating something, like, sustainable, though. Because on the internet everything is so vapid, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's where I think the books are so important. Because you're there's still like this tradition of publishing. But it's there's kind a of a lovely irony, I think. Really. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you talked about the uh, the space, and well, let's start let's start with the fact that you got going by uh, by forming a community reading series. This is happening, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm that's how it began, right? Yeah,
1: that's how it all began. Um, last, yeah, it was my last year at Concordia kind of around this time that I discovered the outlet gossip group and kind of saw what they were doing. I had a friend in the program that I met who became a great ally of mine for a couple of years named Guillaume Morissette, who's a local writer. And we were just like, let's, let's just like throw a reading, you know? And we, there was a guy in our class who had a loft that he lived in, and we invited a bunch of people from our program, I think there was 10 of us there, and we all just sat around drinking and sharing our poetry with one another. You know, for the second one, we decided to make a Facebook event, and we invited a bunch of people, and, you know, and then from then, like, and it just seemed like immediately there was like a... a, A lot of people coming to our readings. It was like, because there was a huge lack at that time in Montreal of readings being organized by people in their 20s. Right. Um, And I think that, you know, the literary readings that did exist were, you know, a lot more traditional in that they were taking place in bookstores and were very, like, quiet. And the readings we were doing were a lot, especially at the beginning, like, kind of wild and. You know, it was kind of like a happening, you know, I'd say it's mm-hmm. more like a happening that we were tapping but, into. I but think be
0: people were quiet so they could listen to the poetry, no, or no?
1: People would be quiet and like to listen to the poetry, yes. But It'd that was good. a challenge. Like, I think my intention was always just to I wanted poetry to, to be the co- like, I, I've always thought poetry is like the coolest thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to create an environment where people could realize that poetry wasn't this inaccessible, like, archaic thing. Because I think there people have had a lot of preconceptions about what poetry was. You know, and the, the people that I was working with and featuring at these readings were writing in a new style that was really engaging and of the here and now. and were relatable. Well, it was like... I mean this is a good example like Jay, Richie, so this is like a line I opened from a book I, that's on the table. Sure. Like a line. I wait to pay for my discounted bottle of Fructus two-in-one shampoo conditioner. A team of construction workers swing sledgehammers at Zeller's family restaurant booths. The woman ahead of me with shelving units in her cart haggles the price of the floor tiles. And I wonder, am I attractive enough to be in a shampoo commercial? So, you know, it's like, um, it's just kind of, it's poetry of the everyday, you know, it's, it's poetry that references contemporary life and, you know, and it's very curious about the self that exists in this kind of world. That is just like a little example.
0: But you, you saw this as sort of a, not a trend, but a a type of poetry that was coming out of your Millennial. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I kind of genre almost. Exactly. Yeah. I sensed that there was like this new, I don't know if I want to say genre, but there was this new style of writing that was emerging from these, you know, post internet millennials that was very different. And it didn't seem that there was much space back to the space or interest in people publishing that work. From the industry.
0: So in other words, you, uh, again, to put it in sort of crass commercial terms, you saw that there was some sort of a niche that could be filled by...
1: Yeah, I don't think I saw that at the time. Okay. I think it was very, always very, intu- it was like intuitive. I didn't really know what I was doing. When I started the press, we did six books to start, printed 100 copies of each one, and I thought that was going to be it. Mm-hmm. But then... There was immediately that this great interest from 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 writers, from bookstores, from people all over who were super excited about. So, what about did you do?
0: It. Did you take these around to bookstores and ask them to sell them for you, or it, did you just put them on put it on the internet and say, "Here they are"?
1: Um, the way it worked originally was we did this fantastic launch in this old bathhouse, so we sold our original copies at the launch, and then. I was super, I was like really shy and I was, you know, it was kind of my dream to get our books in Drawn and Quarterly, which is just down the street. Mm -hmm. And they actually reached out to me like the day after the event and were like, we would love to have your books. And I was, you know, I was so shy. I was like, I don't, I don't want to like bother you guys, but like, you know, and then they've become like, they sell our books really great at that location now. But anyway, so there was people were coming to me. And there was also, I had made an online store simultaneously. What, through so
0: Shopify or something like it that? It was
1: originally on Big Cartel, which is, yeah, just one of those where you can just have like a few products and it's very simple. And then we shifted to Squarespace eventually. Okay. So originally it was just people from the community, friends and family of the writers, and then, you know, like a few bookstores that were interested in us.
0: So how did you choose the first six? uh...
1: The first six books were... And what were they?
0: Let's have a look. Because I'm a book collector. I'm super interested in those first six.
1: Yeah, so... This what these ones? I'm, I'm pulling for anyone listening. I'm just pulling them off the table. Okay. So these were the first six. I'll One a, of I'll them. I'll take a
0: photograph of those. Okay. Yeah.
1: So we have Allie Pinckney's Tampion, who was a peer of mine at Concordia. Roland Pemberton's Magne- Magnetic Days, who or was a friend of mine, wasn't isn't a student of poetry. He actually comes at it from he's a rapper. And but he was also the poet laureate of Edmonton for a while. Jay Ritchie, who was also a peer of mine. Matthew E. Duffy, who was a friend like a very eccentric friend of mine. His book is the most experimental book we've ever put out. Okay. And then Laura Broadbent Interviews, which eventually, you know, part of that book is now in a coach house book that she has out called In on the Great Joke. Of yeah. course I put out my book as well. Because, you know, as, as much as I was interested in supporting the people around me and the, the people I felt were very worthy of having a first collection, you know, which I realized through doing multiple readings that they would come out and I, it was clear to me they had a lot of material, you know, so as much as I was interested in supporting the people around me, I also wanted to support myself too, because I was also struggling to get my work out there as well.
0: It's interesting you should say that, because I recently interviewed the founder of the Aryan Press out in San Francisco, and their first book, his first book, mm-hmm. was his own book mm-hmm. right, of, of poetry and sketches. And so yeah, obviously this is, that, was, that was an important driver for you, is this was a way for you to get your material out, your create creation now
1: yeah but I also I think I realized at that time if I wanted to get my own work out I needed to create like the conditions for that work to to exist you know and I was never interested in so doing legitimacy it alone. you mean maybe like I don't know if legitimacy is the right word but I was never I guess I'm a, I've just always just been interested in, in community you know and if I were to just have put my book out You know, I just, I feel like that would have been lonely. Like, I wouldn't have been able to, um, I don't know, like, tap into that which I've been able to tap into.
0: Well, uh, again, this is sort of a commercial comparison, but for me, the best time I've ever had, the most money I've ever made, is when I've done it with a couple of people who have become, became... Really good friends of mine. Mm -hmm. So we celebrated together. We had a ball together Mm -hmm. And it was way more fun than going it on my own.
1: Yeah Yeah, it's like it's a currency, you know, it's when I started the press. I was living on welfare I didn't have any money. And so Mm -hmm. the people I knew and like my friendships Were like the greatest wealth in my life And you know I and I cherish that and I and I still you know, I still cherish that
0: you picked basically people that you knew, friends, whose work you respected. Is that pretty well how? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The response sounds to me like it was terrific. Yeah. Pretty early on.
1: Yeah. I immediately felt very welcomed.
0: Mm-hmm. So then what? What was the next step?
1: Oh, it's all such a blur now. And when was <laughs> this? this was in 2014 Mm -hmm. so that would have been the spring of 2014 and then the next step was after those books came out I got a bunch of emails from people I kind of knew that were wondering if I'd be interested in publishing their books so that's when the submissions kind of started happening because at first it was solicited and then I started getting these submissions which ended up with these books right here. Okay. Um, this, this is this one. But, so um, this is
0: where you you got to start using your uh, judgment.
1: Exactly, yeah. So, you know, after that there was, I'd say I probably got maybe 30 submissions, chose five of them, and then from then on, like, our submissions have gotten, like, I get so many submissions and that's...
0: How many is so many?
1: I'd say, like, we do open reading periods, like, once or twice a year. But I'd say, like, 500 manuscripts a year.
0: lengths oh, and so Yeah, exercises. all over the place. Okay.
1: You know, and that's been interesting for me, because when I started, it was a response to what I felt was an inaccessibility of, you know, literary presses to be, you know, better at communicating and more open and transparent.
0: You mm, mean, you mean the... The literary presses that you had approached felt inaccessible? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I was also like, look, I was really interested in working in publishing and I really wanted like an internship. Yeah. And that was, you know, I, I emailed every publisher on the East Coast of Canada post graduation and, you know, didn't even hear, like, didn't even hear back, like, thank you for your application, you know, and I just felt, you know, so I really wanted to create something that was accessible.
0: So you basically said, screw you, I'm going to do my own.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what it was like. I was, was like, watch me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that gets back to our our quote, doesn't it? Their doubt is good ammunition to prove them wrong.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think there is like some sort of power in, in not... F- in f- uh, anger.
0: There's a good. There's good power in anger.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like the passion for the literature, and then the anger that, yeah, I just didn't feel like I was ever going to get anywhere. Yeah, I think that yeah. was what has kept me going. That's
0: like, interesting because I I interviewed uh, Adam Gopnik, the New Yorker critic, not that long ago, and he made a sort of pronouncement on your generation saying that they what well, their ambition wasn't quite as vaunted as our, my generation's ambition mm. in the 80s. What's your take on that?
1: Well, it's, it's really quite hard to say. I think in the 80s, it's safe to say that there were more financial resources. You know, I think my generation is, is plagued with you know, not having many financial resources. We do have, you know, digital resources now, which is a whole different currency. In terms of ambition, I don't know. I think it's pretty hard to be ambitious in this world. I think, you know, I can speak personally, like there's just so many issues that, are, that the world is plagued by right now, you know, and it just seems... I know yeah you can like feel kind of stuck sometimes. Yeah. But complacency is never never gets you anywhere, you know, and I think I was really lucky to meet some incredible people in my the beginning of this process who were very ambitious. This is more in the music world. I had like a friends a lot of friends in the music world who you know, eventually got to a certain level of success, but it was only through their ambition, you know, like blind ambition, insisting on, on the work and doing a good job at it. But I don't know. I think it's a really interesting question.
0: My daughter, who's your age, I think. or am 30. Okay. Yeah. She's not your age. She's about six years younger. She suggests that it, that there's a different kind of ambition and mm. that success is defined in a different way. Mm. Uh, maybe settling for the fact that there isn't the kind of money and wealth around that they're used to but it's there's more of a balance a balanced view of what success might mean
1: right I think that's a really good point actually I think Mm. I think yeah I think our generation has totally different ideas of what success is Mm. I think a lot of my peers and myself are in this position where we, we know that the valuable work that needs to be done in the, on this earth isn't necessarily valuable, like economically.
0: Yeah. Um, it's not valued. It's not
1: valued, exactly. Um, but we know it's, it's so important to do, you know what I mean? I think that our generation was raised, I've talked about this with my friends before, with parents who were all about follow your dreams That was the motto that like lots of the people from my generation were brought up with because, you know, our parents, things, not to say that they didn't struggle, but things I think seemed a little easier to put together in terms of family life and career. So we were all raised with this follow your dreams thing. Mm -hmm. My parents said that all the time.
0: I say that all the time. Yeah, to, and it's a beautiful daughter.
1: thing to say to people, but it's also very but impractical. you've got to
0: be realistic, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you've got to be able to live a practical life, too.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, my parents were like, live your dreams. And I was like, I'm going to be a writer. And then I got to Montreal, and it was a lot more complicated mm-hmm. and political. And, I, and then I anticipated it would be. And, you know, there was they were very... Very like concerned about me for a while. They were kind of like, "Are you gonna be okay? Like, what are you, what do you, what are your plans?" And I was like, "I don't know. I'll yeah. figure it out. I guess." Yeah, yeah.
0: The I guess the the goal of uh, Metatron, at least initially, was to reflect the sensibilities, these kind of sensibilities. What yeah, maybe like, you could expand on that a bit.
1: I always saw it as like an. Archival project in mm-hmm. a way, where this writing was happening and it wasn't being published, and it, I was really interested in in archiving it first and foremost in the in the format of books. What
0: is it again? You're interested in archiving it, this kind it. of this kind of writing. What kind of writing is it?
1: It's hard to define, I guess. I'd say that lots of lots of the work I'm really interested in is um, it's personal and it's trying like I guess I'm really interested in how the minds of this generation are thinking and what they're feeling and how they're responding to the world around them so like when I look at a book I really would like for it to conjure like this time and place in the future Mm -hmm. like I love the idea of someone picking up a collection of our books like 50 years from now, and being like, oh, of course, this was like 2018. Like, you can, you can feel it in the book.
0: This captures it perfectly.
1: Uh, yeah, really? I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go as far to say perfectly, but I think that it captures the emotional, the emotional center of, of millennials.
0: Okay. I, I was pushing you to say perfectly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> really? <laughs>
0: because. <laughs> um, no, I'm not a hundred percent sure about how to pronounce her name. Rupi Kaur.
1: Yeah, Rupee Kaur.
0: Rupee Kaur. Yeah. Milk and Honey has sold 1.5 million copies. Mm-hmm. Does that capture the sensibility of your generation?
1: Oh well, not of our generation, no. If you want me, to, if you want me to talk about Rupee, I have a lot of feelings about her. I think it's great that poetry is being read by millions of people. You know, her work is more, I think her work is more in the tradition of like romantic literature in a way, where it's more about love and loss, which is something that lots of people can identify with.
0: So you don't think it's trash?
1: I don't think it's trash. I think, I don't, you know, it's, there is a conundrum there with like the quality of the poetry. But it's, you know, Rupi is a poet that is straight from Instagram. You know, like she had a huge following on Instagram before she became huge. So it's this whole new, yeah, I think that she kind of represents this, like, I don't know how to put it, but post-social media poet, you know, we don't have to wait for people to publish us anymore, we can publish ourselves mm-hmm. and be in control of that in a whole new way. And I think, I think it's quite exciting. I think you know, I think it's easy to turn our nose down on anyone who ever has a mass level of success, especially as a poet, because poets aren't supposed to be successful. You know, poets are supposed to be on the fringes. And do you think that has anything to do with people's dislike of, of Rupi? that she just got really famous? Is that the problem? Well, there's
0: always going to be a bit of jealousy or envy around someone who's achieved huge success. I guess the question is the quality of the work itself. In my opinion, it's drivel, Mm -hmm. but it's obviously hit a chord. Mm
1: -hmm. I think what's really exciting about Rupi is i you know I was teaching in creative writing workshops in high schools um, this winter in Montreal and you know trying to get them excited about poetry and was bringing you know some of the works that we've published and the last couple of classes I brought Rupee into into the class and I was teaching in all girls it was an all girls school and they already knew about Rupee and they were like super excited they loved her. And their love for her made them more open to experiencing other poetry. You know, so there's like, you know... No, one it's a door argument.
0: opener. That's one good way of... Yeah. It.
1: And I think that Rupi Kaur is more for like that younger generation. I think it's more like, even like I feel too old to read her sometimes. Although, when I was going through a breakup, there were a few poems of Rupi Kaur that like really... Really, like, I like, felt them, you know? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she's also a great performer as well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is something that I also really look for in, in writers that I work with is I like people who know how to, like, engage with their work and to, like, connect it yep. with a live we audience. believe in their work. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So but, if she was one of those uh, 30 that had submitted work <laughs> to you for Metatron. Mm-hmm.
1: maybe maybe not you're like shaking your head I'm like what do I say I mean to be fair like Sarah Sutterlin who's an author I've worked with quite a bit I've done three of her well, we reprinted it was I Want It to Be the Knife was a chapbook at first and then it sold really really well and then mm-hmm. we reprinted it this, this one under your recorder is the second version of this and then we did baby. You designed lunch. the cover on that. Um, I I made it happen. The author had a very specific idea of like what she wanted. Okay. Which is also another part about the press is that I love for the authors to be involved in what their books look like. Sure. Um, but Sarah's I you know, Sarah's very similar, she's a little bit more explicit than Rupi Kaur, but like she her work does very, very well on the internet. So I don't know, would what I would I've but i have published ruby <laughs> who knows
0: okay we'll leave that we'll we'll leave that definitive response <laughs> is what we'll do you gave me a selection of about five or six books and from what i read there's all sorts of references to movies and popular culture Which I, funnily enough, I understood because I took my children, my girls Mm -hmm. to a lot of these bought whatever it was or watched the movies or is this a kind of a nostalgia Hmm. for that time that's coming out in these?
1: Hmm. That's an interesting point. It's true. Yes, Anna, well yeah, I guess it could be. It could be. I think there is this sense of Frustration with how fast media works these days mm-hmm. yeah like of the two books like Senna actually lots of the, the writers I work with actually aren't necessarily like full-time writers they also do other work so Senna is a uh, I believe a media studies student like she studies film
0: Senna Yi
1: yeah Senna how Yi. do
0: I look that was my favorite.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic, so one of our, that's one of our new ones. The
0: cover is terrific.
1: <laughs> yeah, the covers are so fun. I actually, I think another, you know, important aspect of Metatron is that I really wanted to make like good looking books, you know, and, and yeah, as I said, like involve the artists in, in realizing them, you know, whenever I take on a manuscript, there's always the conversation where it's like, send me. You know, a bunch of photos of of books you like, of images you're inspired by, of colors. Everyone has been super happy with their covers so far. Because I think it's a shame when you have a book come out and you don't like how it looks, and then you have to promote it.
0: It's interesting with the uh, starting off as a reading series, looking at this commercially, you had a kind of a built-in focus group there, didn't you?
1: I guess so. What do you mean by focus group, though?
0: Well, I mean that friends of yours and people that you invited to participate in this, in this series, they would present their work, and you'd mm-hmm. automatically know what kind of reception they thought.
1: That's true. You know, and I love, I love doing readings. Like, I wouldn't still be organizing them if I didn't. They're always, you know, they're always free, and...
0: You've done about 50 of them, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. We did 50. That blue mat one that you went to was the 50th one that we'd done.
0: That's a lot.
1: Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's a lot. So featured, you know, close to 200 different writers. And, you know, that's for me, like, that's really great information, you know, to see someone perhaps who I'm interested in publishing and to see how they how they're able to represent their work is is, you know, that's always like very helpful in a way um, to see how people respond to it. Because, you know, I'm very interested in publishing work that people feel connected to. And not everyone, you know, since lots of, like, especially the newer books are a lot about, like, identity politics, you know, not everyone's going to relate to that, but if it's written in a way that people can, can get into there and empathize, I think that's a very powerful thing.
0: Some of the great publishing houses and, and in fact, Canada's greatest ever publisher, Jack McClellan, said that he, he published authors, not books. Mm-hmm and so i guess with these reading series you could you could get a real sense of the the person the mm-hmm. author and how confident they were in their own material
1: yeah yeah cuz small especially small press publishing like every every book i decide to take on like i enter a relationship with with a person you know it's important for me that i'm working with people who share similar not the same values and beliefs as me, but some you know people who who operate with the same sense of, yeah, like respect and I don't know. I also like pushing the envelope a little bit. So people who are a little like edgy. I'm not like super like I'm very open minded with like who it, who it is I work with, but so every- you don't just
0: restrict it to identity politics. Then, for example, like a lot of the bu- well the books that you sent me, you know, there's there are uh, gay colored people there are trans people mm-hmm. there are like are you limiting it to intersectionist
1: right like feminine well <laughs> or
0: feminist or like are you are you trying to give them a voice i guess or a or a space
1: yeah but are you well, doing
0: that like are you focusing on that or not
1: so metatrans if started with like a heavy focus on publishing women and then you know i think Eventually, I realized that wasn't enough. Like, I, I feel like I'm really interested in creating space for people who, who have different perspectives to offer. So I think publishing... What am I trying to say? Give me a second here to pause. Sure. I'd say the last couple years, I've really shifted in my thinking in terms of what kind of writers, people I'm interested in, in supporting, what I've come to the conclusion with is that I want to be publishing perspectives that other people aren't necessarily focusing on, or that have been underrepresented in the history of, of literature.
0: So you are you doing this to the exclusion of straight white men and women?
1: No, definitely no. Okay. I'm not trying to exclude anyone. Okay. I think my, my interest was when I, when I first started Metatron, I noticed that the submissions the first couple of years were coming mainly from white, straight people. And that worried me because that wasn't... I wanted to be reading and choosing from a diversity mm-hmm. of manuscripts mm-hmm. as well as I wanted, you know, with our readings and with the community, I wanted to be making a space that like many people felt su- safe and supported in. So, you know, I really feel like that's Treat a whole... Treated equally. Treated equally, yeah. yeah. And I think that there's a whole other layer of Metatron that's like my sort of like, I would, when, maybe I'd say activism or I'm trying to make a change in, in the world in that way as well. I want the press to, to have like a diversity of different perspectives. Sure. You
0: know? Sex. Mm-hmm all over those books you sent me
1: yeah there's a lot of our books are kind of or they're pretty smutty sexual but they're also written by people in their 20s yeah you know
0: (laughs) I can remember Um, that (laughs) yeah and it's you
1: know and it's something that I feel like I always like worry when when people from older generations read our books because they're either gonna like hate them I didn't hate them at all because there is, like, they're kind of explicit, you know? Yeah.
0: That's my, That was my question, was, uh, like, sex doesn't shock me at all. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that maybe they're trying to be shocking. I don't know. Maybe not. And, and I do, you know, I know that sex just dominated my life for, you know, years. Mm-hmm. At least the thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. But this is nothing new. Mm-hmm. And... Why the emphasis on it? Is it just because they're all in their 20s and they're <laughs> super horny?
1: I don't know. You know, what, I, I actually think that I wonder if you could like offer some musings on this, too. But I feel like one effect of the Internet and social media is that privacy is really different now. You know what I mean? Our ideas of privacy are very different, mm. and you know, you're right to say that it's not new that writers are writing about sex, like Henry Miller, and like you know, the whole history of that, and S Nin and the City Lights poets. Interesting, I think, you
0: should mention City Lights because because <laughs> your books remind me of their books, that kind of square. Yeah, book. I was actually yeah.
1: inspired by them when I was trying to figure out the format of them. I loved the idea of them being small. Yeah, I don't know about why the fascination with sex, but I think it's just a big part of people's lives, and it's, you know, usually pretty private, but it doesn't need to be.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm debating whether or not to bring this up, but...
1: Go for it. I'll
0: go for it. I sent you a poem. Yes. Uh, I thought it was a terrific poem.
1: Yeah, I loved it. Actually, I'm going to pull it up and have a look at it. Yeah, over.
0: that's good, because I want to remember her name.
1: Let's have a look here published on Boat Press, which is a great press, um, that I just kind of, actually last night I was looking at them. Lynn Melnick, The Night of the Murdered Poets.
0: That's right. Okay. So Lynn Melnick, The Night of the Murdered Poets. In it, she talks about her menstrual cycle Mm -hmm. and the fact that that might have been her first poem or one of the first poems, right? Right. So I was reminded of the fact that at that reading that I went to, mm-hmm. you talked about your menstrual cycle.
1: I did. I like, It's so embarrassing. But yeah, I did. I mentioned that I was on my period.
0: So I was trying to get at, is this shock value? Or is it mm. trying to normalize a behavior that women are have been made to feel embarrassed and ashamed mm-hmm. of for years and you're just yeah. trying to normalize it? Yeah, maybe.
1: I think it's more that. I think this the more we talk about things that are supposed to or have been kept private,
0: Yeah,
1: I'm really interested in that and I think, you know, another thing I think is important about this is that vulnerability to me is like very golden. Like when, when writers can be vulnerable in their work and write about things that are kind of hard to, to talk about or even to hear, I think those are like the, the, the topics I'm really interested in exploring
0: mm-hmm.
1: because I think that it opens up a, an opportunity for readers and for the public to, to engage in hard-to-talk-about topics. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're right to, to say that, yeah, maybe it is an attempt to normalize something that seems very normal to us.
0: Something that's taboo, or has been. Yeah. Although poetry really shouldn't be about, I don't think, making people feel comfortable about talking, about...
1: It's making them feel uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's a that's a whole other conversation, I think, is what role is poetry serving in, in contemporary society. You know, we don't have nature poets anymore. Well, there are some, but you know what I mean? Like, poetry is like... Um, I feel like it's a great place to kind of see where people's consciousness is, what we're thinking about. Um, I don't think it's a place, my place, to judge what people want to write about. I don't think that poetry should make you feel comfortable or uncomfortable. I think that poetry, for me, is just this, this gateway to thinking outside of your own head in, in, in ways that they can be moving or uncomfortable. But for me, poetry is about getting access to other ways of thinking. Like what? Like in in a different body. You know, imagine imagining if you're in a different body or in...
0: That's what literature does, though.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: What about poetry? That's what makes poetry different.
1: I feel like poetry is more free. I think there's more... It doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't need to be logical. I don't know. I guess there's there's people who say that poetry is harder to write than than fiction, and there's people who think otherwise. Like I've always felt poetry is very natural. One other thing, I guess I'd like to say in regards to that is that I think what with originally looking back on what I was trying to do with Metatron and the poetry I was choosing to publish is that I was trying to open people's minds to other forms of poetry. You know, what is poetry? Can poetry be, uh, like, exist on Instagram? Can it be mm. a really mundane moment in, in the grocery store? Can it be, you know, talking about your period? Like, I, I just I just think poetry is everything to me. I think it's a space that can encapsulate so many things. And that's why I use the word free to describe it, is that it's this, this space where we're free to talk about and write about whatever it is that's moving us. What it is that's moving us is a different thing, perhaps generational. Um, is it sex? Is it a moment in nature? Is it a movie that we watched? But yeah, poetry is like a, it's a way of thinking. It's like a way of responding to the world, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a striving after an understanding that's beyond language, too. mm
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, we use it, I mean, I use it to understand who I am and like what I'm feeling and...
0: All we've got to to do that with, to think with, is language. And mm-hmm. So that's restricting, isn't it? Yeah. But we're still using it with poetry.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, since I write, I work with younger authors who are in their 20s. The 20, Your 20s are a time where you're very, you know, you're very still like ego-driven, like you are the center of your own universe... You know, and I think you know, there's a certain maturity that comes with with poetry as you as you age and you realize, you know, you become more of a person of the world as opposed to just a person on your own accord. Mm. So I think you know, our books are reflected of that, and I wouldn't say that it's like high high art poetry. I would never say that about our books, but I think, I think it, I think there's something like really important in in publishing. Mm young writers at the beginning of their careers. You know, first book is everything, mm, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah, they'll never forget it, for one and, thing.
1: And yeah, and then our, our readers are very young, you know, so that's getting them into poetry. And I, and I love that there's like this, this culture of poetry that people are excited about.
0: There's a great book that I've recently read called Why Poetry by Matthew Zapruder. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed him about this. And he's putting together a guide for teachers because he feels that the way it's been taught has been uh, it's really boring, problematic
1: problematic and it's very boring too yeah. not that poetry always has to be fun. Do
0: you have some thoughts on how it should be taught?
1: Um, hmm. I actually really struggled when i when i I was working with poetry and voice for for a while, as I mentioned earlier on and I really struggled with how to teach poetry and I I realized that the reason I was struggling is because for me poetry is is, as I said earlier on like a way of thinking you Mm -hmm. know what I mean so how do you teach someone or instruct someone to see what's beyond what's in front of them write a poem about the tree like what is what is that like gateway of, of teaching people how to like see beyond and feel beyond like what it is that's right in front of us. It's very difficult. I don't think I have, I don't think I know the answer to that. I don't think it, like reading, I think it would be an assortment of different things, like reading, work, and then maybe doing... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know Mm -hmm. the answer to that.
0: Well, how do you teach it?
1: It's always different. It's very like intuitive. You know, I don't, I I would teach like once a week kind of thing, so I would have time to think about it. So I would, you know, pick a bunch of work that I felt would be appropriate for the age level I was teaching. And I would start the class by, actually one thing I did that worked really well was at the beginning of the class, I got everyone to close their eyes and take a moment to just like be in their bodies. And then I got them to open up their eyes and to, to write down a bunch of words. So they had, they had like a bunch of words that were just kind of sifting inside themselves on a page. And then, you know, I, I did some readings and then, you know, I got them to add words. And then at the end, they constructed something kind of linking all their like thoughts together inspired by that which I had. But I think giving them the space to feel because poetry is so much feeling and thinking, but feeling. So how do we create learning environments where people are feeling? You know, that's not something that the education system really does.
0: It's true. It's sort of all business, all logic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if,
0: <laughs> if they encourage feeling, then they might encourage rebellion, and that's mm-hmm. not exactly what they want. Yeah.
1: yeah, so poetry is kind of a... It's kind of a dangerous art to get, not dangerous, but yeah, I understand, I think well, I Well, dangerous,
0: that's what they called Byron, was a dangerous man.
1: Really? <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Poetry is very powerful, you know? Words are powerful.
0: Well, good poetry is, and good poetry is pretty hard to find. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the problem.
1: Yeah. It's a hard art, for sure. We were talking about this earlier on, but going into stores and, like, as we travel, like, finding the bookstores and uh, use new... And poetry is always the smallest section. You know what I mean? Unless it's, like, a poetry-focused store.
0: It is, but the poetry books are so skinny that you can get a hell of a lot That's of That's true. <laughs> That's true. Just to finish it off, what are your dreams for the future?
1: Um... I have like there's hmm I'm kind of in that like dreaming phase right now where I I, you know I'm in this new office and I want to get like a lot more people involved in it
0: young people or do you want to get some old people too I mean I'd really
1: like I definitely am am in need of mentors um that's something that I've I've always I've I've realized like recently the last six years I haven't had mentors and there's like a huge lack of mentors in even for like younger writers too Mm -hmm. and so so wait a minute
0: publishing mentors or writing mentors
1: publishing mentors like specifically like I would love to make this sustainable I'd like to keep on going I'd like to keep growing doing more books doing them better moving more units having them more read but i've kind of hit hit a point cuz most of this has just been the work that i've done like i've done most of this on my own people have come and gone a little bit but i am kind of in a place now where i realize that i need i need help i need help from people who have like done it before and i think for a long time i didn't want to accept help cuz of like the way the story of like why this exists and how it happened but yeah now i'm kind of like Come on, mentors, and there are some people who are taking interest in helping me. So yeah, working with more people, making this sustainable, keeping it going is my is my dream. Be great to win some awards. Who knows what kind of award like our books, you know, they're not it's like it would need like a whole new award system.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, three of the great publishers in Canada, Stan Bevington. Tim Inkster, Andrew Steves.
1: hmm All men.
0: All white men. Yeah. They can be mentors, though.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm open.
0: <laughs> great. Well, we'll put the call out and... Yeah,
1: uh, hit me up. <laughs>
0: check in uh, in another 10 years or so.
1: That sounds great.
0: Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me.
0: I have been talking to. Now it's funny. You're, the name that you want to go by is actually uh, Obscura.
1: That's actually like my mother's maiden name, and I'm actually, I've like the last year I've been adapt, adapting it and wanting to, to use that as my name now, as opposed but, to Opine, which is yeah. my dad's name, which is Norwegian. Yeah, but my mom is Mexican, At Obscura is um, like Spanish in Spain.
0: Atlas Obscura.
1: Yeah, it's, I love Atlas Obscura. Me too. Yeah, it's super cool.
0: Yeah. And uh, this is Metatron, and we're in the new offices in Montreal. Thanks again.
1: Yeah, thank you.